Today in part four, I want to talk to you about this. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that just a really great title for an Easter sermon? The gospel. A lot of people have never heard the gospel or even know what it means, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the answer to what that is is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And it says, I want to remind you of the gospel or the good news, many translations say. Notice this capital letters, good news, which you have received. And here's the gospel. Ready? Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And so I want to make sure those of you that are just here this Easter, and we may see you for Christmas. If not, we'll see you next Easter. I want to make sure before you leave, you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have three points for you today. And as I was studying, I came up with three different options for each of the three points. And they're always very cohesive, of course. Um, and I couldn't figure out which one I wanted to use, so I used all three for everyone, okay? You'll know, listen, 30 minutes from now, you'll say, oh, I get it now, okay? So point number one for your notes is Friday. Death, justice. Friday, death, and of course, if point number one is Friday, then point number two is obviously. Woo, okay. Um, graduates from Soxty High School. Let's try that again. <laughs> point number two is obviously Saturday and burial, and, but you might not know what the next part is. But anyway, so point number one, Friday, death, justice. Here's what justice is. Justice is giving someone what they deserve, which is punishment. If someone lies about you, you want them to apologize. That's their punishment. If they steal from you, you want them to pay you back with interest. That is what justice is. So the question we have today for point number one on the death of Jesus Christ, why did Jesus have to die a horrible, horrific death? Why did he have to be tortured? Have you ever thought about why didn't God let Jesus be born in an era where there were guns? So that when it came time to die for our sins, he could just get shot in the head and then it would be over. Or maybe he, died, he would die of old age for our sins, you know. Why did Jesus have to actually be tortured? To answer that question, I have to ask you one more question, and that is this. When you and I were born, were you and I born equal with a perfect, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God? Or were you and I born unequal from a perfect God? Uh, what's the answer? Uh, just make sure y'all pay And the Bible calls that iniquity or inequity. We are not equal with God. Not equal with God. So to explain that point, I have the scales of justice here. And I don't know if you've ever seen a scale. I'm sure you have. Um, the way the scales of justice work, well, the way people think they work. Okay? People think they work like this. They think that when you go to court for something or when you're called in or when you're accused of a crime, that the prosecutor puts all of his or her evidence that's against you on one side. Why they think you did it, what they think you deserve. And then they think that the defense attorney comes in and tries to keep you out of jail or hell in this case. And puts all the good things that you did on the other side and all the reasons why they think you're innocent. And then people think that if the bad outweighs the good, if the prosecutor's evidence is just too good, then that means you go to jail. And if the defense attorney is really good, that means you get out of jail scot-free. People think that's how the scales, that is not how the scales of justice work at all. In fact, on the old-timey scales of justice, you never see the word justice written in the middle. You see the word justice written on one side. Because the actual way it works in our judicial system is this. When you go to court, the prosecutor puts all of his or her evidence that is against you on one side. And the defense attorney comes in and puts all of their evidence that is for you on the same side. All the bad and all the good on the same side. All the reasons you're guilty, all the reasons you're innocent on the same side. Then the judge is supposed to render a verdict that is the application of justice. The judge sits on the other side. 
The judge hears everything that they said for you, everything that they say against you, and once the judge renders a verdict, that verdict is supposed to balance out your scales. In other words, after the judge hears everything and the judge thinks, okay, um, you're guilty and you need to go to jail for 30 days and pay a $10,000 fine, that verdict is supposed to balance out the scales. See, you love justice. You just don't know it. You love it. If anyone ever does you wrong, you want the scales to balance out. If they offend you, if they call you a name, if they bully you, pick on you, steal from you, lie about you, gossip about you, you want the scales balanced. You love justice. Well, Unless you do something wrong, then you ask the court for mercy. <laughs> Don't give me what I deserve. So they think that that's how the scales work. The judge renders it. Now, if the judge hears everything and the judge says you're innocent, and not only are you innocent and you get to go free, but the other side needs to pay your court costs, that verdict is supposed to be the application of justice, and then the scales balance back out. You understand? Psalm 711 says that God is a just Judge. He's never unjust. He can never be unjust. He's always perfectly 100%, not 99.9, 100% just all the time. So what people think happens is when they die, they think that they arrive at heaven and God has these big old scales, which the Bible says he does. They think that when they get to heaven, God looks at your life and looks at all of the good that you did and puts all that good on one side. You came to church, you, you, you did your one-year Bible five times on earth, and you didn't even skip Leviticus, maybe twice. But anyway, you tithed and you gave in the offering above your tithes, and you were kind. And then all the bad that you did, every lustful thought, every jealous thought, every negative word, every second that you spent being slothful, lazy, or the wrong way, all the bad. And people think when they see God that God looks at all the good and looks at all the bad, and if the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. And if the bad outweighs the good, then you go to hell. Listen real close. God is a just God, and that is not how it works. How it works is God puts all of the good and bad on the same side. I mean, every good deed you did and every bad deed, every single fault that you have ever thunk, good and bad goes on this side. Every penny that you ever spent, either God's way or in a selfish way, on this side. Every syllable you've spoken, positive or negative, all on the same side. And then because God is just, God of the universe sits on the other side of your scales. And how many of you know when he does that, you will always be unequal with him. You can cry and say, God, I'm going to church and I raised my kids well and I did my best and I love you. And I read my Bible and I, I memorized scripture and that worship that I gave. And all of that is adding one or two feathers on your side when there is one million tons sitting on the other side. And you can beg your family to sit on your side. And you can ask your whole church to sit on your side. You can ask Billy Graham to sit on your side and Mother Teresa. And you've just added three or more feathers against a million tons of a perfect God. So the question is, what was the punishment that had to occur for your earthly life so that you could be equal with God? I'm glad you asked. It says in John 19, 1, the pilot had Jesus scourged. The crown of thorns went upon his head by the soldiers and they beat him 
in the face. The Romans were professionals at torture, scourging, and crucifixion. Now, when Jesus was arrested on Friday, it was really Thursday, 6 p.m. our time, but the Jewish calendar starts in the evening, which is not weird because our nights, our day starts at midnight. There starts at 6 p.m. when the stars come out. So they, they arrested Jesus, and from 12 o'clock to 6 a.m. to the sun rose, he went through six trials, three Jewish, three Roman trials. Now, let me remind you, the Romans said we find no fault in him. The Jewish trials said he's guilty of blasphemy. Even though the Jews said he's guilty and Romans said he wasn't, the Romans were still the ones that arrested him and scourged him and beat him. Now, scourging is whenever you have like a wooden handle, a wooden stick, and there are 24 pieces of leather on the end. At the end of each piece of leather, there's either a glass shard or a piece of a like barbed wire. And every time they would beat the victim, it would all 24 pieces would sink into their flesh and rip their flesh right off their body. The Bible says that a Jewish scourging is 39 lashes. This was not a Jewish scourging. It was a Roman scourging. A Roman scourging is unlimited. Uh, the, when the Romans would finally stop scourging is when one of two things would happen. Either when the spine of the victim was finally exposed or the bowels spilled out of their body because there was no flesh to keep them in there. Isaiah 52, 14 says this. Many were shocked when they saw Jesus. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was even a man. Now, you can study world history, pagan history, Jewish, Christian, Roman, Latin, all of it. And you'll find the only human being in all of our world history who has ever been scourged and crucified was Jesus Christ. Um, you know, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, and Greek is derived from Latin, and English is derived from Greek. In Latin, the word crucify, cruci means cross, and fy means to fasten. Uh, crucify means to fasten on a cross. But the word crucify came out of the word excruciating. Because by the time the Romans became experts at this type of way to, to, to torture and kill somebody, it was actually, they said it was actually, there was no other possible way on earth to die that is more painful and more horrific than being crucified the way the Romans did it. And they knew exactly how to do it to keep the victim alive as long as they could as they went through all the pain. It was excruciating what they did to him. Isaiah 50 verse 6, Jesus said this, I gave, they didn't take it, I gave my back to those who beat me, my face to those who plucked the hair from my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Here's what I'm trying to teach you. Listen real close. Here's why I'm saying this. Every single hair that was pulled out of his beard, every hair that was plucked began to balance out your scales. Every single time they slapped him with an open hand or punched him with a closed fist, it balanced out your scales. Every piece of flesh that came off of his body balanced out your scales. Every single piece of thorn that went into his skull and the blood that poured out of his pores whenever he was uh, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of that balanced out your scales. There's a scripture that every one of us know in here, but there's a word of the scripture you've probably never seen before. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, what's that word? Yes. What's the word? Yes. It doesn't say merciful. It doesn't say gracious. It doesn't say loving. It doesn't say kind. Now, God is all those things, but it doesn't say that. Remember, God is a just God. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just Perfectly just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's, what, here's the great news about the death of Jesus Christ. God can never, ever, 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 ever punish 
a single person for their sins if they are in relationship with the one who was already punished for their sins. All, of, all the punishment, all the payment for every sin, every negative thought, every lustful thought, every bad word, every cuss word, everything you've ever done, he's already been punished. He, God is, if God punished you and Jesus, he would be unjust. So he can never punish a single person for their sins when they are in covenant relationship with the one who was already punished for their sins. And wait, there's more. If you call right now, let me tell you what else happens. Um, if someone murdered one of your family members and they caught the guy that did it, and he went to trial and they said, we, you're guilty. Obviously, we, we've got all the evidence. You're guilty. And then he goes to sentencing where the judge says, here's the punishment. You know, lifetime in prison, death by lethal injection, whatever the case is. If someone murdered your family member and they caught the guy, he goes to trial, he's guilty. But at sentencing, someone steps up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I love that man. That's my friend or my brother or my uncle, whatever. I want to take his punishment. I want to be punished for what he did. And then the guilty party gets to go free and the innocent friend is going to take the punishment. Let me ask you this real true question. Is that the application of justice? Yes or no? No. Is there, would that appease your anger if your family member got murdered and someone innocent was punished for what the person did to your family and the guilty one went free? Would that appease your anger? Yes or no? Okay, listen, this is amazing news. Jesus did not just take your punishment. He took your sin. He didn't just take your punishment. God would be unjust if he punished Jesus and Jesus was completely innocent. So here's what Jesus did for you. He didn't just take your punishment. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made Christ who never, ever, ever sinned. Watch this. To become sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God. He took your punishment and took your sin. That's why when he was on the cross, when he said, why have you forsaken me, Father? The Bible says God is so perfect and so pure, he can't even look at impurity. He could not even look at Jesus. Here's why. Because he was holding your sin. God couldn't even look at him. This is, this, this is why nobody is in hell for sin. Nobody. Adolf Hitler is not in hell for the things he did wrong. People are not in hell for sin. They're in hell because they don't have a relationship with the one who took their sin from them. Jesus took, the Bible says he took the whole world's sin. It's all been paid for. The stuff you already did, the stuff you're going to do. Let me say it this way. Nobody's in heaven because they're good. If they were in heaven, because if they were even 1% good enough to go to heaven, then Jesus would not have had to do all that he did for us. The reason he did what he did is because nobody's good. Listen, God's standard for heaven, just so you know, for your little sweet old grandma that you think never did anything wrong. Listen, God's standard in heaven is not good. That's not his standard. His standard is perfect. It's perfect. So none of us have access to heaven 
without Jesus Christ. So here's what, here's, here's what happened. So I'm on my scale. I said, God, please, you know, I tried to be a good father and I brought my kids to church and I served you and I read my Bible and I led people to you and I, you know, I got, I got people saved and I, and, I, and I told them your word and all these things and feathers, just feathers, just feathers. And God, what do I do? Then all of a sudden I say, Jesus, will you come into my life? And Jesus steps up and he stands on my scale. Boom! And God looks at me and says, equal, 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 equal. Because I'm in relationship with the one who stood on my scale, everything becomes equal. That's what happened on third. That's what happened on Friday. That was death, and that was justice. Number two is this: Saturday, burial, mercy. Saturday is the day of burial, mercy. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, which is hell. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. They buried Jesus on that Saturday. They posted guards outside the tomb. Matthew 27, 65 says, Pilate said to the soldiers, seal the tomb. They put mortar all around it. Make it secure. Be on watch. It looked like it was over. It looked like it was finished. It looked like the only good thing we got out of Jesus was those three years of ministry. And now everything's over. It's done. We can go back home. He's dead. He's in the grave. It reminds me, um, this past week, Past Wednesday, one of our teenagers, Kyle, he plays baseball for Socrates High School. And his dad, and we're, we're good friends with Tim and Teresa, and, and Tim plays baseball himself. And so they go to his games, they watch Kyle play, and Kyle Socrates was playing Conway. That's the opposing team, by the way. And, um, and, and so they were doing, it was just a horrible game. They already won like 11 or 12 games this season, only lost one. And so it was a really exciting game. When it got to the sixth inning, Socrates was losing four to one. And Tim and Teresa had to go and pick up their other son from youth, go pick up little Timothy from youth. And so big Tim and Teresa, they go get their other son, and they think, you know what, we're just gonna go home. Because Socrates losing four to one, sixth inning, they're not coming back. I can't even bear to watch. What they didn't know was after they got home, something amazing happened. Socrates started to score some runs in the last inning. It was completely tied. They had to go into extra innings. In the extra innings, Conway scores a point and all the bases are loaded. Now it looks like again we're going to lose, but they put Kyle out there in the pitcher's mound. Kyle doesn't let anybody score a point. Socrates up to bat. Kyle goes first. Long story short, Socrates won six to five and the game was over. And here's the point. Sometimes, sometimes we go home before the game's over. <laughs> Sometimes we give up when we get to a certain age. Sometimes we've made so many mistakes, we feel like, how could God use somebody like me? Sometimes we've been run over so many times by the devil, we feel like giving up and being done. Listen, Friday may suck eggs. Saturday doesn't look that great either, but Sunday's right around the corner. Don't go home before the game's over. If there's still breath in your body, there's still another inning to pitch, to play, to hit, to catch. You can still win this game. 2,000 years ago, Satan and his minions were celebrating. They shot the confetti. Jesus is laying on the ground in hell. They poured Gatorade on Lucifer's back. They brought out that congratulations cake. It had candles on it. They didn't need a match, you know, because they're in hell. But anyway, and so... They're all celebrating. They all think it's over. 1 Peter 2.24 says Jesus personally bore our sins in his own body on the tree, which gave him access into hell. That's how on that Saturday Jesus ended up in hell was because of me and you and our sins. 
So Jesus, I can imagine it was like a huge baseball stadium, like the World Series, or in this case, the Universal Series. Jesus is by himself. Every demon in hell is gathered to celebrate what they think is their victory party. Satan grabs the microphone and says, aren't you glad you rebelled out of heaven and followed me? And all the demons, rawr, rawr, and everybody's so excited. He says, I told you years ago, if you left him, if you turn your back on God, one day we would rule the earth. And today is that day. God is laying at our feet in hell. At that point, I can imagine Jesus starts to get up from the ground. Satan says, what in hell do you think you're doing? You can't defeat us. You're surrounded by every demon in the universe. With all of my heart and soul, I can imagine that Jesus said three small words. Cue the music. the son of God fought every single demon in hell, cancer, racism, lust, hatred, murder, sickness, poverty, disease, depression, discouragement, unbelief, fear, worry, doubt. Can you imagine what it was like? Colossians 2.15 says Christ defeated all his forces and made a public spectacle of them during his victory celebration. Jesus dragged Satan by the neck and took him through every corridor in hell to make sure that all the demons saw clearly that Jesus was and is the undisputed, undefeated champion of all time. I read this true story about this missionary in South America. He was traveling by horseback trying to get to another village that he was going to speak at on Sunday. It was a hot Saturday afternoon and he was going through these tiny trails through the mountains in the jungle and all of a sudden his horse stopped and he didn't know what was wrong so he gets off the horse and he looks up ahead around the corner and the largest snake he had ever seen was curled there. It was a nine foot snake basking in the sun. Its head was, was under some shade under this flat rock. I mean, he was scared to death. His heart gripped with fear. He looked around to see if there was another way and there wasn't. He had to get to that village before sundown and so he didn't have a weapon, didn't have a gun, didn't have a knife, didn't know what to do. So he thought, I'm gonna grab the biggest rock I can find I'm going to hurl it on top of that rock that's above his head and just let it crush it and hopefully that'll kill it. So he goes out and he finds the biggest rock he can and his heart's just beating so fast and amidst all his fears thinking, what if I miss and the snake attacks me? What am I going to do? He just runs as fast as he can. He hurls the rock and he runs back. When he looks behind him, much to his surprise, the snake did not move a single inch. He got a little bit closer and he realized the snake was already dead. Someone traveling down that path before him killed the snake and left it sitting in the road. Here's the good news of what happened Saturday. By the mercy of God, Jesus Christ already went down our path and he defeated every demon that could possibly destroy our God-given destiny. Don't ever allow a totally defeated enemy to keep you from serving God and to keep you from your future. Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Stop allowing a defeated enemy to stop you from doing what God's called you to do. 
Point number three is this. Sunday, resurrection, and grace. Grace is giving someone what they do not deserve, which in your and my case is heaven. On Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead and he sent his spirit to live in the heart of every believer. Romans 8, 11 says the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. I really want you to get this scripture. It's very important to me that you understand the same person, the person of the Holy Spirit, the same person who raised Jesus from the dead, literally, physically, the same person is the same person that dwells in the heart of every believer. Jesus took your punishment, took your sin. He defeated your enemy. And listen, on Sunday, he gave you the choice by his grace to live with him for all of eternity in heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 says this, for by free grace. Is it free or do you have to pay for it? Okay. You are saved through faith. Is it faith or works? Faith. It was nothing you did. Was it something you did or nothing you did? Nothing. But a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Um, it's so funny how hard it is for Christians to really understand this part of the gospel. It is the grace of God that's allowing you to breathe right now. I know we think we're smart and we can figure things out and we have our own these strengths and we, we have passions and talent and a high IQ. And listen, everything you have is from the grace of God. You did nothing to deserve your heart to beat. You've done nothing to deserve being able to hear the words that I'm saying now and read the words that are on this screen. You've done nothing to deserve what you have. Nothing. You have nothing on your own. If you could even do 1% by yourself, then Jesus could have held back a little bit. But nothing. You could, it is 100% the grace of God. Not 99.9. 100%. 100, 100, 100. Don't leave here thinking you are anything without Jesus. You are nothing. 90% of the Bible is that we are crap, trash, manure without Jesus in our life. We are nothing. Nothing without Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. What? No? Or what? No? Nothing. Nothing. The best way that I can explain to you the grace of God and a relationship with the Holy Spirit is through a video about two men that you're about to see. In 1962, Dick and Judy Hoyt had a son. Their son, Rick, was born with his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. And he's never been able to walk or talk, but his parents did everything they could to give him somewhat of a normal life. When they put him in school at 10 years old, they discovered that he was brilliant despite not being able to walk or talk. So some scientists back in the 70s created a computer specifically for Rick so that he could communicate using his eyes. Uh, when he was 15 years old, he heard about this 5K marathon at his school to benefit another teenager that was paralyzed in a sports game. So the first thing that Rick said when they hooked this computer up to him was, I want to run in that race. Come on, Rick. You can't even walk. You can't even talk. How are you going to run in a race? So his father who was not an athlete, decided to train. Every day when Rick was in school, his dad would put 100 pounds of concrete in a wheelchair and push it around the neighborhood over and over and over again. They finished that 5K marathon together, 
and they decided to continue. They put the, the computer back on Rick, and at the end of the race, he said, I've never felt more alive in my entire life than when I was running. To this day, and the father passed away just a few days ago, by the way, which is why I'm showing you this in honor of them. But to this day, they've run 72 marathons, 97 half marathons, 257 triathlons, which is 2.4 miles of swimming, 26.2 miles of running, and 112 miles of bicycling. Up until a few days ago when the father passed away, they ran 1,130 races, which is 1,129 more than you and I have probably ever run, just so you know. This, what I'm about to show you, is the most perfect picture of the grace of God.
I don't know if you could tell in the video, but I am the boy in the wheelchair. And the father has been pushing me and pulling me and carrying me and dragging me and helping me and encouraging me every single second of the day since I started a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I wanted to tell you, I wanted to say, you know, will you get in the chair today? But grace, listen, you can't even get in the chair by yourself. Grace is, will you let God pick you up and put you in the chair? That is the grace of God. Jesus was punished for our sins. He took our sins. He defeated our enemy. And he's given you a choice. If you will allow him, if you will be done with your own strength, be done with your own pride, be done with your own dreams, and surrender your life to him. And I promise you, when we get to the end of the finish line, you and me, we're going to hold our hands up like we did something really great. <laughs> and we'll look back and realize the whole way God was carrying us. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So.